0: And you're very welcome to Music As, an interview series where I'll be chatting to different people about the role music plays in our lives. I'm Louise O'Connor, a fiddle player from Clare, and I'll be joining the dots between music and lots of different areas. You can listen to the podcast on all the usual platforms and on my website, louise.ie. You can follow at Music As Podcast on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. And please like, subscribe and share the podcast if you enjoy it. I'm delighted to have as my guest today one of Ireland's leading guitarists, Steve Cooney. With a background in rock, reggae and Aboriginal music, he travelled from Australia in the 80s to get to know his Irish ancestry and has since played on almost 60 albums. He won four awards at the Orty Folk Awards last year including the Lifetime Achievement Award as acknowledgement of what President Higgins called his towering musical intelligence. Mike Scott of the Waterboys has said Steve revolutionised Irish music with the driving and eruptive power of his guitar playing. On top of all that, Steve is in demand as a music producer and also holds a PhD from NCAD on an intuitive musical notation system that he developed for those who experience difficulties with staff notation and early learners. You can find a demonstration of this system on a recent video he made on the Big Bang Festival YouTube channel. Coincidentally, in my most recent interview, music therapist Tommy Hayes described how he often uses Steve's solo guitar tracks as part of his therapeutic work. And that's no surprise if you've listened to Steve's sublime album Cíol Ársa Clársí Tunes of the Irish Harpers for solo guitar, which Sván Blanc gave a 5 star review to calling it a glorious celebration of an ancient heritage. It's an exquisitely soothing album, which everyone needs to have and can be got from stevecooneymusic.com. I'll open our chat now with a clip from a tune from this album called Celia Connell. Mm-hmm. Hello, Steve, and you're very welcome. Thanks for talking to me today.
1: Hi, Louise. How are you?
0: I'm good. How are you doing up there in Donegal?
1: Good. We have we had a good spell of nice weather and uh, it's a bit windy today, a bit of rain driving across the mountains. Uh, we have a couple of days of weather that isn't great, but sure, that's grand anyway. The nature is beautiful no matter whether it's sunny or, or windy. We're all in our little nests. Doing our own little things,
0: that's it, and you've had a bit more time in your nests than usual this past year
1: yeah, and i'm I'm enjoying it I've been enjoying it because I'm so far behind all, all the jobs that I have to do I um, mean I've load of jobs of my own that I have to do for myself, and then I've jobs that I've promised other people I would do uh, recording their records and and then I've got a couple of records of my own that I want to do. So I've appreciated the time uh, where I can be working away in the studio and try and catch up on my backlog.
0: Yes, and you live in such a remote place up there, Steve, don't you? Can you describe it for us?
1: Well, Thielen is uh, it's on the southern side of the southernmost peninsula of Donegal, so it's southwest Donegal, and it's the end of a, a long... Harbor, uh, which was an ancient, um, fishing port, I suppose. And it's mentioned in the old maps before Killy was and, uh, was traditionally a fishing village, but the fishing has kind of gone now. And, uh, I- talking to the older people, they talk about how they used to, with every month, they'd be fishing for a different thing, salmon one month, lobsters another, herring another, mackerel another. And, um, but that's all changed now with, um, with the modern fishing practices, so uh, there's sheep and fish and music, plenty of music. It's I didn't realize when I got the place that it was the epicenter of Donegal fiddling. Famous fiddlers like uh, Con Cassidy and Frank Cassidy all came from this area. So um, in my ignorance, I had thought that was that it was further north. So there's a great heritage here, and it's a Gale talk as well. It's a small to. so uh, you feel very connected with the with the old culture here. That's for sure.
0: Hmm. Would you be speaking your Irish, Steve, when you're when you're out and about?
1: I speak it as much as I can. My I, I'm ashamed that my Irish isn't better than it is. I would try and use what I have whenever I'd be with people who would be speaking with me. Some of the people you'd be speaking English to and others that would just be exclusively Irish you'd be speaking with. I'd be more familiar with the Kerry Irish, the girl talked of Corcoguina, which is the girl there. And so it's quite different from the the Donegal. But um, I'm learning bit by bit and I enjoy learning. Um, It's very interesting to see. I'm getting better at it (laughs) than I was a few years ago anyway.
0: Yeah. So so Steve, taking you right back now to when you first arrived in Ireland, you spent time with an Aboriginal tribe in Australia and you were encouraged to look into your own culture and I know your ancestors are from Ireland. So could you tell me a little bit about that process of getting into that initiation and how that brought it Ireland
1: yeah well i suppose it's a long story but it, it's uh the key points on the way would have been that um i forget exactly what year it was it was possibly 1975 or 76 there, there was a on christmas day there was a cyclone that destroyed darwin and the city at the in arnhem land at the top top of australia and there was a benefit concert and um one of the musicians there one of the singers Uh, played the didgeridoo. And and I thought that kind of hit me that, yeah, if I'm an Australian musician, well, I was working as a a studio guitarist and playing in bands as well. If I'm an Australian musician, I should learn the Australian instrument, the didgeridoo. So I I embarked on a process of of, uh, studying the didgeridoo. Uh, But I lived in Melbourne, which is essentially white. You'd have to you'd have to seek out any Aboriginal people that lived there, whereas in the Northern Territory it's predominantly Aboriginal. So through a series of coincidences I, I, I found my way up there. I was I was playing with um the singer Melanie Safka. She was a a hippie princess goddess, I suppose, in in the sixties and um she'd lost some band members in Australia and so I, I was a studio musician so I I joined the tour, finished her tour for her. We were in Darwin, so uh, that enabled me to um, get out and make my first Aboriginal contact uh, and learn the very basics of the didgeridoo. And then the next year I met in Sydney at a festival, Sydney Festival. I went to see a dancer, uh, David Galpil, who you probably know is a famous actor. He was the actor in Walkabout, and... uh, he was dancing and his uncle was playing the didgeridoo and uh, so I met them and was talking to them and um, they invited me back to stay with them and uh, they invited me up to live with them in a place called uh, Wugalar, which is out of Catherine in the Northern Territory so I was up there studying didgeridoo learning the the old traditional way of playing, and then they had asked me, did I want to go through initiation, which involved uh, scarification of scars on your shoulders, and that took a while to go through that process, and I did. And then after that, uh, I was told, how do you expect to understand our culture? You don't even understand your own culture. Go back to the land of your ancestors, and it was, it was quite funny and quite true, um, so, uh, my mother's side were Scots and English and my father's side was Irish. So, so I, quite coincidentally, you know, you, you find these synchronicities when you get engaged, when you engage with the Aboriginal people, you find a bunch of synchronicities start to happen and your life, begins to move around that. And, uh, I, I, I didn't know any Irish music. I didn't know any Irish musicians, but I began to meet them. Uh, very quickly after that. And, uh, I had a gig on playing didgeridoo at a university. And it turned out I was the support act for an Irish group called Pachin, who, was uh, the first time ever hearing jigs and reels, I suppose. I, I, I was aware of Alan Stivell, who had a Celtic band together. And I was aware of the Chieftains. But this was my first time hearing hearing the Irish music up close. Then they asked me to do a couple of gigs with them, which I did. So I was sitting in. I remember the, then the conscious decision just to okay head for Ireland. So I I came to Ireland, and um, I must say that the whole experience of being the aboriginal people, I learnt more about ego-shattering or stripping off than I did about the actual music because it was an extremely humbling experience. But anyway, so I went to Cairns, chilled out for six months, and then uh, then I left. Uh, I went to England uh, first as a staging post and was hanging out with the Rastas and then busking on didgeridoo to stay alive. And I was arrested then in, in uh, Notting Hill, for busking. And, um, I remember I had, uh, I think it was two pounds, 36 pence. And that was the money I had. And, but I had 30 pounds for the ferry fare to Ireland in my boot, which I wasn't touching. Anyway, I was taken to court and, uh, fined three pounds, which I, I couldn't pay the three pounds. So I had to make a second appearance for time to pay anyway, my three pounds. And, um, I I remember a truck driver had brought me to rosslare and then I from rosslare to Dublin. And so uh, I I arrived in Ireland with uh, nothing really, except that I got a great welcome here, and uh, I sat down in Stephen's Green. I thought, well, that's nice. Stephen's Green is my my home place here. Uh, I I went into a pub and I noticed a sign pinned to the bar that said, no singing (laughs) allowed. And I said, uh, what a fantastic place that everybody must be singing all the time if they have to put up signs to say that no no singing allowed. In fact, I saw that sign in very many pubs around Dublin in that time, which was 1980. So it just created an image in my brain of uh, a place where people love to sing.
0: Yeah. If there's a need to, to ban them, then they must be plentiful. <laughs> exactly, exactly. That's brilliant, Steve. Um, I'd say you've much more. there's much more to those stories.
1: <laughs> yeah, absolutely, Louise. But um, if I had to say one thing, it's just that I learned more about what a wonderful people they are, the Aboriginal people. And uh, I learned things about hospitality, generosity, um Mm. And sensitivity of spirit, and um, I had to drop a lot of prejudices. So, but it was good for me. It was definitely very good for me.
0: I I find it fascinating their connection to nature and their connection between music and nature, and the way the songs are used as as ways to to travel across the land.
1: Yeah, the song lines. It's very deep. The whole the whole thing is extremely deep. Mm.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's it's a whole um it's a kind of a like a diminishing of the ego as you say and kind of allowing nature and and spirit to guide you isn't it? Well,
1: that's very true. And uh, however, it's also you feel part of a system, and once you feel part of the system, a lot of intangible, unanswered questions just fall away because there's a system that really is a, a workable, efficient system and. If you're just doing the right thing in, in your small part of the system, uh, everything will go okay. So I find it very comforting, to be honest with you, that um, that everything is interlocking so amazingly. And, uh, you know, everyone looks after each other, you know, it's, it's communal responsibility. Which is not to say it's heaven at the moment, because the Western society broke down that culture specifically, uh, in, in a genocidal way and a uh, hundred years ago they were fully expecting that the people were going to d- just die out so it was a policy of assimilation just let them die out but they haven't died out and they won't die out and th- the things are getting stronger and stronger but nonetheless what western society has done to them is not good and um, all, all the alcohol abuse, petrol abuse there's a lot of hardship and a lot of loneliness and heartbreak and people trying to reconnect the stolen generation people trying to find their birth mothers and people trying to find their children and it's uh, quite a lot similar along similar lines to what's been going on recently with mother and babies homes just children being taken uh, for different reasons uh, that same degree of tragedy definitely so, I don't want to wax lyrical or romantic about it, however, having said that it it is cruel, and I, I'd weep when I'd be up there just, just seeing the tragedy and hearing the stories been told to me by my uh, adopted family there of you know what life was like. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very hard, but at the same time, the door becomes open to you where you can see this vista of a beautiful indigenous society, and that's very heartening.
0: Mm-hmm yeah it's it's incredible to witness the music there and the dance like i attended a aboriginal dreaming festival when i was in australia and it was just amazing to see it celebrate but also as you say like so tragic to learn about the, the mass genocide like that has gone on there of a whole kind of world view isn't it trying to wipe out this particular view of the world
1: Very true, and not just Australia, I suppose, Mm. the Native American, Aboriginal people in Canada and all around the world, and Ireland as well, was going on here for many hundred years. But we can learn lessons from Indigenous culture, I think, about how to connect with the land and how to connect with our spirits.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And you talked about how you learned the didgeridoo. I found that really interesting that it was like they were trying to transmit it into your consciousness and bypass the mind which is like the most powerful form of learning really isn't it?
1: well that's true um that was uh on this tour where i was with melanie and i'd gone to see i'd gone out to a, an aboriginal camp and um well, it's a long old story, but that's absolutely right. I mean, I, I met this huge man. He was blue, black. He was a warrior. And I, I, he hit me on the shoulder. I belted me on the shoulder. What are you doing here, white boy? And I was uh, uh, I was kind of terrified, of course. And uh, he scanned me left to right, like, bzz, 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 and told me a few things about myself. Because you, your spirit gets opened up. When you go into shock, mm. you're all opened up. And then I said, well, I'm here to learn didgeridoo. So he just said, play the didgeridoo. So uh, so I stop. Play the didgeridoo. Ooh, stop. And he wouldn't let me play more for more than a second each time. And that went on at least 10 times, I'm sure. And then one time I played the didgeridoo. And he, he was singing. And I was playing in a rhythm and he was clapping along in the rhythm and singing a song. And I was in a state of amazement because uh, he had transmitted that knowledge to me directly. So it wasn't it wasn't an incremental kind of process. It was you either have it or you haven't got it. Uh, well, that was just the start of it. Of course, I had to learn properly the words like Did you more, did you more? Did you more, did you more? Did you more, did you Did you more, did all the different words used for, of which the basic rhythm is, did you more, did you more, did you more, did more, did more. So I had to learn a scholastic process, of course, from the from the old men. But this was this was the moment where he kind of ripped, ripped part of me open and just stuck this knowledge inside me.
0: Yeah, amazing.
1: So transmission of knowledge, yes, it's an interesting concept, isn't it?
0: Yeah. I was thinking about that in relation to your geometric visualization system of teaching, which you've received your PhD for, of course. but. You were talking about that system of teaching as being a an, an way to access the intuitive side of music. You were saying that you, the more mathematical side of you that the staff notation system requires, that that didn't particularly suit you. So were you influenced by your time there for that kind of system?
1: Absolutely. No, you're right. Music to me comes from a very... Well, I can't, don't know, could I say where it comes from? But, um, music to me is an intuitive experience where you are, you're in some kind of flow. And when I look at the five lines, it just becomes a blur and my brain freezes. And that's, it's been like that since I was at school. So, so I just couldn't relate to staff notation in an intuitive way and i know many people can and i know that all jazz musicians can but i couldn't and um so i had but i had to develop a system for reading and writing because i was a studio musician so i had to i had to and doing gigs so you have to have some way of remembering what you've rehearsed and so i developed a couple of optional kind of systems but In later years, I worked out one that was very much based—not obviously, but internally—based on Aboriginal perspectives, like the circularity, kind of lot of circles. You can read it from different perspectives. In other words, you know, a piece of Aboriginal art is meant to be seen. On the ground, as if you're looking down on it, and that'd be the same as kind of sand paintings in the desert. You're looking down on the painting, so you you can see it whatever perspective, wherever you are in the circle around that painting, you can still see the painting. Whereas music on a stand, you have to be with in a certain angle of the stand, and you're within so many, so far away from it, and at a certain angle, it's much more limited. So yes, the the system was visually definitely influenced by Aboriginal art, for sure. But intuitive, yeah. I wanted it to be intuitive because I want to just kind of—I'd not use the word space out because that sounds pejorative—but I wanted to have my mind in a state of drift and be able to see that notation and I still have it speak to my intuition without having to count so many bar lines and 4/4 four, four and um three sharps and all that kind of stuff which involves mental calculation because to me mental calculation is perfect for um doing your practice and composing your tunes mm. but when you get to performance you should be beyond that calculation you should be just in the zone so i wanted a system of notation that meant i could just be in a kind of a mental drift and and gaze at this piece of paper and it would still speak to my intuition by passing my mind. So, uh, yeah, so...
0: And, like, maybe allow for maybe delving into the emotion of of a piece, maybe. Sounds like it's a system that's more suitable to that.
1: Definitely, um, definitely to let the emotion come through. And it's also, strangely enough, it turns out that it's, it's very good for analysis. You can, because the, each squiggly pattern is more visual. Like when you look at a five-line staff notation piece, you you always see the five lines, you don't so much see the the pattern of notes upon it, although a a practitioner of music who is good with stuff can see these patterns, but I, I couldn't really see them. I'd just be seeing these five lines. Whereas with this notation system, which I call GV, geometric visualization, but with these patterns, they become very, very obvious as to are a phrase, certain phrases repeated or is that phrase based on that or is this phrase an opposite of that? Mm. So you can do analysis of a work and see patterns in the the music that you wouldn't be able to see normally. So I find that handy.
0: Yeah, I I found it fascinating, Steve, how it can can be used in early childhood education and the the rhythmical mats that can be put in playgrounds with the different colours and the circular representations of the rhythm. I think that's an amazing kinesthetic way for children to learn and it's how children learn best. Yeah,
1: well, that's true. And um, of course, children are most open to learning in kindergarten and early learning years and that's that's when they take in the most music, It's when they're most interested in music in those early years. So I, th- I think we should be able to convey the technical aspects of reading music. If we can get it across in those early years, well then we could be d- developing a generation of great young musicians. And so I'd love to uh, have a system developed, which I've been working towards, that teachers can access the children and they the children can access a system whereby they can express their musical knowledge at at that early age.
0: Yeah. And you wrote a little bit about its potential as like a dancing mat as as a way of learning rhythms for dance.
1: Yeah, well there is um I wish I could tell your listeners maybe you can advise me somewhere where I could post them. But yeah. um yeah, so this is um uh, an outdoor you know, that rubberized playground kind of stuff. And then you would paint these rhythmic symbols. Well, the symbols are very easy to read. There's, it's made up of simple components, but you can do complex rhythms. So there's lattices of different rhythmical symbols on these dancing mat, I suppose you would call it, or a web. And, uh, and the kids hop or jump from one symbol to another and they have to hold their position for the number of beats. That this that symbol has, so they might be going like one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, four. So it can be quite complex, but easy at the same time.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. I was thinking about that in in relation to how you could teach steps, like teach shandow steps, and I suppose it's because I'm a musician as well. I'm always I'm always trying to teach people like a different way to embody the music, and. Um,
1: yeah, well, uh, we could work on things like that. And um, uh, an Egyptian friend came to me recently and wanted me to translate Egyptian drum rhythms into the mm. system for teaching. And so I kind of had to think about how you could do that. But I uh, did the translation and it seemed good. Although, see, a lot of Irish music, the dance music and the shannos music, is definitely you've got this constant tick 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 tick. Well, it's kind of faster than that. But it's the sub-accents like and it's those sub-accents that can be notated with this system.
0: Mm. Yeah, I suppose going back to the Aboriginal culture like the dance is very much, is a huge part of the, the ritual as well so the kind of telling the story of the culture through dance so I'm always interested in as well in Ireland, like how do the different dance styles in the different parts of the country and the shanos versus the river dance, you know, what kind of story are, are these dances telling? And I know that like dance music would have been a huge part of your Kerry life anyway, wouldn't they? The Polkas
1: Yeah, uh that was a revelation to me. Um you could forget all your notions about um well I, I was going to use the word delicacy. That's a bit inappropriate, but you could forget your kind of mental notions about this, that, and the other. It's like they want to dance. I mean, you're you're talking about farmers and you know their wives or girlfriends. They've they've been working from dawn till dusk, and now they want to go out for a few pints and kick ass. Like, and they they're not interested in. Anything beautiful they went And uh, that that was actually a bit slow for the for the Kerry Polka but they just want to blow off steam and I remember Seamus Begley saying to me when he was playing in the old Maria Hall and his left hand buttons playing the bass. He said it was just to make noise to to, to give rhythm for them to, to dance to. So I used to listen to the the rhythm of the sets. It, it was easier to actually analyze at big gigs, like we might doing gigs at um, the Grand Parade Hotel in Cork, for example. There might be 16 or 20 sets on the floor. So it's 20 by 8, as well as 160 people all doing at exactly the same rhythm. Like in a pub, if you're playing for one set in a very local environment, it's a little bit um slightly chaotic and people aren't necessarily stamping or sliding at the same time. There it's more of an approximation, but once you once you're on up on the stage and there's sixteen or twenty sets on the floor and you listen to the floor it it distills the innate rhythms that are coming though, so you'd hear like it's you'd hear each little slide once you get two hundred people sliding it's it, it, you won't hear it in one sense, but you hear like a shh uh from from the whole floor so uh, so there was an education as to uh, what was there. So then I would be trying to copy those rhythms on the guitar and incorporate them on a... And, and and the dancers like that because you're marking time for them. They, you're giving them a kind of reference point yeah. to be dancing to. And then um, I, I would also know that if I was sitting in a session in a pub and we were playing a reel and I incorporated <laughs> that rhythm... Steady, would you stop... You know, they they just uh, wouldn't want me to do it because they will have none of that syncopation here, <laughs> and it's like, okay, you see, so Irish music is quite comp compartmentalized in ways like the it doesn't the dance rhythms don't necessarily transpose to the session, but I did my best learning I think um, of instrumental music from the dance sessions and and for a musician. Of course, they are the perfect gig because it's a gig, in other words, you get in work, but nobody's looking at you. Everybody's looking at, anybody who's looking is looking at the dancers. Uh, and you're you're on stage and, and nobody gives a topney damn about you, really, apart from the music. I, I love the anonymity of that, playing for dancers.
0: Yeah. I gave an example to a dance class recently of how to embody kind of the the real rhythm and I played a track of of yourself and Martin playing live it just really helps them like to really get into the feeling of the rhythm of a tune like to have that really wild like uh, accompaniment with it and like I was describing to them how that like kind of for me being there at a gig like that is almost like an, an out-of-body experience so I was just wondering how how that is for you. Like, if you're playing, if you can even describe it.
1: Yeah. uh, So, playing with Martin is, uh, it certainly is. It's a spiritual thing. I think Martin is a very spiritual player. And I wouldn't know that he goes into a trance, definitely, when he plays. Because uh, looking in his eyes while he's playing, and I'm only a couple of feet away from him, I can see by the. (laughs) expression in his eyes that he's half there and half somewhere else so I know it's a trance-like experience for him I have to say though that the role of the accompanist is there's quite a bit of calculation involved you've got to you've got to push him as much as he wants to be pushed and drive him as much as he wants to be driven like um, when I was playing with Seamus Begley he He'd want me to drive him. I mean, that was part of my job, was to drive him on. And, um, and Martin would want a certain amount of driving. So, But at the same time, you've got to have this little note of caution at the back of your head where you can't push too hard because you can't... T- it's like a stagecoach careering down this, this, this kind of uh, desert path, or uh, that's a bad analogy, but it's like a, a coach... And, and a horse is kind of careering along this wild country. Now, if you don't exert some bit of control, uh, the wheels are going to come off and the whole thing is going to crash. And you, you Mm. can't push too hard. So I have to be very aware. And this is this little commentator at the back of your head, like to be pushing, pushing, but hold back, hold back, hold back, push, push, hold back, hold back. And you've, you've got this thing all the time. And then, uh, sets with Martin will possibly involve four or five or six tunes, so you know that you can't kind of peek too soon. You've got to just hold in reserve. And, um, then if Martin would be going for some ricochet bowing, like he might go, like, syncopated bowing, ricochet bowing, um, I'd be careful then to, go to a very conservative rhythm because I just want to provide a marker point where he can refer to me to catch his rhythm so he'll always land correctly. So you you've got to be there to catch people and make sure they're on safe ground. And then when they're rip roaring then you you start putting the foot to the floor again and drive them on. And then hold back hold back when they're taking um risks. Uh, because, um, when they're taking risks, they might be speeding up ever so slightly or slowing down ever so slightly. And if you force the pace and they're slowing down ever so slightly, you're going to come back ever so slightly out of time with each other, which you can't afford. The most important thing is to maintain absolute togetherness. So, uh, so as much as I'd like to say that I go off to, I, I've got this little commentator at the back of my head. Um, just observing and watching the person I'm playing with and making sure you are a I you are doing service, you're you are uh providing the melody player with the service of accompaniment and so you can't get above your station. I know it's a terrible <laughs> thing to say. But you you have to um you have to be aware that you're providing a a security blanket for the melody player and and you must give them security. So even though you appear to be driving it wild, you never really, I don't think you ever really are. You've got to just maintain some kind of um, solidity about the whole kind of thing. So, so, I mean, I know that's terrible to say there's calculation involved, but there is, there is calculation involved. Mm.
0: Yeah. Well, it's it's a great deal of calculation and also intuitive response, like simultaneously, isn't it?
1: Absolutely. But where I would find, I would go way out. is actually in the quiet sections. It's it's the mm-hmm. uh, show bands, kind of slow tunes. Uh, that's where I'd kind of let go and cast adrift, and I might necessarily know what I was going to be playing, and that's one of the hallmarks of of that improvisation. You don't necessarily know what you're doing or going to do. You find yourself just playing something. But though those moments, I, I find, are usually the quietest kind of stuff, and they're not necessarily related to the pulse, because the pulse is going to be fairly boom. It's usually fairly solid for those slow pieces. But what goes on within that, and how the pulse gets bent, Uh, I I would quite often go out on those things, but once you're playing the real, you've got to provide a fairly, you've got to provide a very solid basis for um, uh, the likes of Martin, who loves extemporizing and playing lots of rhythmic syncopation. But syncopation only works by definition because. one person is playing a counter rhythm to the other rhythm. So I've got to provide a, a solid rhythm for for Martin's kind of extemporizations. Mm. Mm. If both people are doing the same kind of wild rhythms, you can do it briefly. And I, I, I do do it briefly. I do go out with him, hoping that I'm, we're both going to land in the right place. But um, it's a bit of give and take all the time.
0: Yeah. Like, it's fascinating to hear an insight into the kind of... The dance between me and, you know, from someone looking on the outside, it just looks like a form of magic, <laughs> a kind of, a you know, like a, a channeling or, or, or something, you know, like.
1: Well, I agree. It is, it is, it is like that, but uh, I'd say, and I don't want to diminish my own role in the thing, but with someone like Martin, he's definitely going somewhere and, uh and Oh, okay, so I'm going there with him, but uh, I can't afford to get lost. I've got to have my feet a little bit on the ground. Even though I'm going with him, I've got to kind of be there with the kind of um a security bag. It's a wrong term. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's more like a cushion or a mattress. There's a framework or a lattice or a scaffold that he can drop back into... Any time he wants, and uh, I can't afford. It'd be selfish of me to get too too far out myself. Mm. Strange, isn't it?
0: <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a mystery. <laughs> well, it's not a mystery, but it's to be able to develop, you know, those kind of more, more harder skills of calculation and and response and theory and all of that, and then. To be able to be there in the moment like and intuitively mm. respond like that's that's quite a work in itself to to get those two things together, isn't it? Mm.
1: Yeah, thanks. But it it is very complex accompaniment. People talk about backing as if it's some basic thing, but I think it's highly complex because you're dealing with people who are speeding ups and slowing downs. And you've got to speed up and slow down with the person in a seamless way that it, nobody notices that the music is actually speeding up and slowing down. And it, it, it just sounds very unified. Uh, I think there's an art in that, in in the, the little tiny pushes and pulls, of which there's a lot um, generally when playing with people, things push and pull all the time. And then you've got to know how much energy to put in it as well uh it, it's not just the rhythm, it's how much energy is in the rhythm and how much you hold back and how much you inject energy into the second part of a tune and then pull back for the first part of the tune. So you know, there's a lot in it. Um, I'd be listening to the radio and I might hear a really fantastic set of chords played by a pianist or a bazooki player or a guitar player. And I might say, oh, that was great, who was that? And then they say, and that was so-and-so on the fiddle. And, but they don't mention the piano player and they have to kind of guess. Hmm, I wonder, was that, um, Geraldine Carter, I wonder, was that, uh, so and so and so and so. On. I, I sometimes wind up ringing a rat the up to, to say, well, who was that playing the piano on that? Um, the only point I'm making really is uh, sometimes the accompanist isn't mentioned. And I, I wonder why that is. Do we think of, the music is only being the melody player and that the accompanist isn't worthy of mention I don't understand that I genuinely don't they're the little things I get prickly about in my old age
0: <laughs> That's alright Steve you're entitled to <laughs> Well Steve it's been absolutely fascinating to talk to you about your journeys in music Yeah,
1: Brilliant Louise, well listen thank you very much for having me and I wish your listeners all the very best
0: Thank you very much Steve okay. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Music As podcast. Hope you enjoyed the chat today with Steve. You can follow Music As podcast on all the social media outlets. And don't forget to share, like and subscribe. We'll see you next time. Bye for now.